journey through freedom. And today we're looking at chapters 14 and 15. When the dogs didn't bark and the horses didn't swim. That actually comes straight from the text. The title actually was inspired as I was listening to Lucas' sermon last week. In Exodus 11:7, we read that not a dog will bark against the people of Israel. That is a miracle. And at the end of chapter 14, the Bible says, The waters returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. For the Israelites, that was a time of salvation. But for the Egyptians, that was a time of judgment. So what we learn today is that God will get glory for himself, either through our salvation or through our judgment. God will get glory. And we have the opportunity to choose. And we'll look at chapters 14 and uh, briefly in 15. So let's dive right in. First, chapter 14 starts with fickle Pharaoh who changes his mind. And he has a wrong idea about Israel. He thinks Israel is like sheep lost in the wilderness. And he treats them like that. Look at me, chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pihahirot, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts. And the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh, that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all of the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots, and his horsemen and his army, and overtook them encamped at the sea. Uh, what we see here is a rendering of the Egyptian chariot. Uh, this was considered at the time the greatest technological advance. Uh, it was much easier to go into battle with a two-wheel chariot than a four-wheel chariot. You know, today we think a four-wheel drive is better. No, when you go to battle, the two-wheel is better. And usually what we had here, you had a driver and you had an archer. So uh, the Mesopotamians had the four-wheel drive, the Egyptians invented the two-wheel uh, drive, and again, it was at the time the best technology uh, they had, they had. So Pharaoh pursues the people, but God's plan will prevail. What's interesting, though, is that the, the route they took, uh, the Bible says that, you know, the, uh, the, the Israelites left the Nile Delta here, the land of Goshen, and the shortest way is to get to Canaan is to go 
This way, it's a straight line. It would be like us saying, okay, we have to go to Detroit, and we'll take 15 south. It makes no sense, right? makes absolutely no sense. And that's exactly what happened here. But the Bible says the reason God didn't let him go this way is because God knows his people. God says they will see war and be afraid and turn back. So God sends them a different way, and we know for a fact they arrive at Mount Sinai here when God gives them the law. What we don't know is where exactly they crossed. We know they must have crossed the body of water somewhere between Goshen and Mount Sinai. We don't know exactly, uh, exactly where. Uh, so imagine that the, the people of Israel are leaving and they're being basically caught somewhere, let's say here, but you have the water in front and you have Pharaoh's army behind. What would you do? You probably would do what they did. They panicked. Um, you probably, again, we would panic too if you were pursued by the most powerful army in the world. But their panic, looking at verses 10 to 12, turns into a gripe session. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. What do their words show? Their words show that they had no faith. Remember what God said to them in uh, what God said to them that I will give you victory. Remember God said that to them? Apparently they did not believe. This shows their faithlessness and their faithlessness is shown in their words. They did not believe God when God says I'm going to give you victory. The biggest problem here is not that they're just like teenagers in the back of a minivan, you know, always complaining and griping. The problem is they have no faith. In verse 12, they reveal they have no faith. They did not believe God was going to give them victory. Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. That's what we said in Egypt. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the Wilderness. So God wanted them to bring them out of Egypt to serve him, and yet they want to go back and serve them. This shows disobedience. This shows faithlessness. Psalm 106 verse 7 explains that this was not just a gripe session. This was a full-blown rebellion. Psalm 106 verse 7 says, Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. See, the Israelites believed two lies. One, that the Egyptians would kill them, and two, that God could not rescue them. So what happens when you don't believe the truth? When you don't believe the truth, you will have to replace it with a lie. And that's exactly what happened to the Israelites. So Moses, as a good leader, encourages them. And that's what good leaders do. They encourage them. So he's trying to reassure them. Verses 13 and 14, Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, 
and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today for the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Think about these words. What is Moses reassuring them with? Fear not, stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, only you be silent. Which one is the hardest of all four? I'll let you pick. But someone wise once said this, silence can be misinterpreted but never misquoted. My dear brothers and sisters, we always live at the intersection of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. God will do his work, but we have to do ours. And that's exactly what it says, what it says here. The Lord, will fight, the Lord will fight for you, but you also have to do certain things. In this, in this case, be quiet. The Lord will fight for you. I don't know about you, but I still need that kind of God. My dear brothers and sisters, we need the God of the Exodus, a God who will fight for us. But in order for us to, to be victorious, for him to win the victory, we need to do what he has called us to do. And sometimes those things don't make sense. Think about what he says after this. So think about it. They're pinned between the sea and Pharaoh's army. And yet, God says to Moses, tell the people of Israel to go forward. <laughs> Wait a second. The sea is in front of us. And he says to us, go forward, move along, enough talk. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. My dear brothers and sisters, I know that some of us get paralyzed by different things. By fear, by panic, by viruses, by whatever is going on in the world. We are panic and we are fearful and yet God tells us to do what? Keep going. Move along. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. The sea is in front of me. I'm going to drown. And when we do that, when we don't obey God and we stay and we are paralyzed, we cannot experience the victory of God. Keep going. Some of you need to hear that today. You, you haven't been doing anything. And God is telling you, move forward. Keep going. Enough talk. You have gifts that God has given you. Use them. God, I know for some of you it's a surprise. God doesn't have a secret service. No, there's no such thing as CIA in God's army. You've got to do something. You've got to be out there. Do use your gifts that God has given you. And verse 17, by the way, in the midst of all this, the Bible is reminding us of a very unpopular truth about Yahweh. The Bible says in verse 17, And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his chariots, his chariots and his horsemen. Why is God doing that? Verse 18 tells us, The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. Isn't that what the book of Exodus is all about? And you will know that I am Yahweh, and they will know that I am the Lord. When I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. So God gives victory, and the way he does it, because his people are pinned between the sea and Pharaoh's army, he has to provide protection. 
And he does that. Verses 19 and 20. Then the angel of the Lord who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and darkness. And it lit up the night without no one coming near the other all night. My dear brothers and sisters, this is a miracle. This is a miracle of God. Later when Joshua will think about what happened here, he will say in Joshua 24, 7 this. When they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Think about this. The same pillar, the same pillar who protects the Israelites, now darkens the way of the enemy. Can God do that? Can God use the same thing for his people's protection and the destruction of his enemies? The answer is yes. Verses 21 and 22. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left hand. The victory doesn't come because of Israel's military might or their military strategy. It comes before because of what God does. And the Bible clearly tells us what God's tactic was. Verses 23 and 24. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces, and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels, so they drove heavily. So the Egyptian army encountered, the Bible says, four difficulties. First of all, they pursued the Israelites into the sea. God messed with their minds. They had trouble with their chariot wheels, and they suffered a sense of defeatism. Look in verse 25. We know that because the text tells us, The Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Wow. This is from the mouth of a pagan. Yahweh is fighting for them. Does God, is God faithful to his promises? Yeah. He said from the beginning of the book, they will know that I am Yahweh. And you will know that I am Yahweh. And everybody will know that I am the Lord. Can we expect correct theology from a group of pagans? The answer is yes. Satan is the best theologian of all. He knows everything. Demons also believe and they shudder. Intellectual knowledge does not equal faith. Someone said... Someone will, some people will miss heaven by 18 inches from here to here. They will know it here, but they will not accept it here. You will know that I am the Lord. God fulfills his promises. He threw the Egyptians' forces into a panic, and God then gives the victory. Verses 26 to 28. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. 
The water returned and covered the chariots and horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh and had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Did you catch that? It's actually in your Bibles. The Bible actually says, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. My dear brothers and sisters, the story is simple. God will get glory, either through our salvation or through our judgment. You get, you get to pick. You get to pick in what team you are. I'm asking you to take God seriously. Because if you think this was something, read the Bible to the end and what the book of Revelation talks about, the judgment in the end, is nothing, nothing to laugh about. And finally, for the first time, we actually we see that Israel moves from faithlessness to faith. Verse 31, actually starting in verse 29. The people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wallow to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant, Moses. For the first time, we actually see them, they believe. They saw the works of God, and now they believe. Now, if you know Israel's history, you know that will not last very long. The gripe sessions will return. You just have to read a couple of chapters further in chapter 16. But at this time, the Bible says, the people feared the Lord, they believed in the Lord, and in his servant Moses. By the way, the servant of the Lord, that title for Moses, is the highest title a mortal can have in the Old Testament. Servant of Yahweh, servant of the Lord. It's more than just a believer. It's one who acts on God's behalf. Moses was God's personal representative. Moses was Yahweh's personal representative. Israel saw, Israel feared the Lord, and finally Israel believed. So what's the timeless principle? The timeless principle that was true yesterday, it's true today, it will be true tomorrow, is this, that the Lord, Yahweh, is able to deliver his people from danger because he is the sovereign God of creation. I don't know about you, but I still need the God of Exodus. I still need a God who makes his promises and who keeps his promises. I still need a God who is a miracle-making God who opens the sea before me and who gives me salvation. I don't know what you are facing, but I want you to put your faith in the God that opened up the sea. And listen to his words that say, go forward, keep moving, keep moving. Trust me and trust in me. And what we see in chapter 15 then Basically, chapter 15 is our application. How do we apply the truth that we have learned today? Well, chapter 15 is all about praise. Israelites turn to song and they praise God for who he is and what he has done. So chapter 14 is written in prose and it's about, I, I've been told I can't pronounce this word correctly, but so I'm going to spell it, W-A-R-ship. Verses 15, it's W-O-R 
worship. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? For me, it's both of them are worship. Yeah, I know. I have a problem with English is a difficult language, by the way. But worship, what we see in chapter 15, is, is a response to who God is and what he has done. So as we think about how to apply the truth, I want to stop here a little bit and say that we, like the Israelites, need to praise God through singing. By the way, you've done it this morning. And some of you are doing it in your cars. Some of you are doing it at home. See, it doesn't say praise God through singing only when you're at church. Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the, the sea. Can you imagine Moses leading a group of a, a million people through song? Wally, would you like to lead a million dollar, a million dollar, million people, million people choir? Wouldn't that, wouldn't that be great? To have a choir of a million people growing up in Romania, my dad was the choir director, by the way, my parents are here today. That's why I had to dress nicely. Um, <laughs> my dad was the choir director, but you know, we had a small choir, I don't know, 40, 50 people. A million people choir. Can you imagine that? But here's what I want us to learn, my dear brothers and sisters, that there are benefits of singing together. Don't you love it when we sing together? Actually, there are two things that happen when we sing together as a congregation. One, it unifies the congregation. When we sing together, we show unity. And unity is important in the life of the church. Think about this. The congregation does the same thing together at the same time. See, right now, I'm speaking, you're listening. Some people are working back there. But when we sing, we sing together. It's something that the only thing that we do together as a whole. Parents and grandchildren and children and grandparents, they're singing together. Think about the technological advancements of today. When we get together, we are on our phones, right? Think about it. When we are at church and we sing together, we're actually doing the same thing together. It's a wonderful thing. Do you think that will work in our homes if we do it with our families? Think that will help? I think it will help. First of all, singing together unifies the congregation. And second of all, it strengthens the congregation. Because when we sing together, we proclaim truth together. We sang this morning, I'm no longer a slave to fear. It's one thing if I tell you that, if it's the other, if we sing it together. That's powerful. Think about the, so, the, the, the words that we sang this morning. The Lord of angel armies is always on my side. It's one thing if I say it, it's another thing if I read it, it's another totally different thing if we sing it together. You might say, I don't have the gift of singing. Nowhere does it say in the Bible that you have to sing in tune to have perfect pitch to sing. That's why it says a joyful noise. Some of you make joyful noises. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to lead the singing, but you can sing. It's one thing that we can all do together. If you look 
the congregation sings together. One, uh, James Montgomery Boyce described music as, and I quote, music is a gift from God that allows us to express our deepest heart responses to God and his truth is meaningful and in memorable ways. And it is the case of our hearts joining with our minds to say yes, yes, yes to the truths we are embracing. The Bible says that all the Israelites sang. One rabbi imagined that even the baby, the babies at their mother's breasts were singing. Here's what one rabbi writes. says, even the suckling dropped their mother's breasts to join in the singing. Yeah, even the embryos, even the embryos in the womb joined the melody. And the angels' voices swelled the song. I love it. Everybody was singing. So praise God through singing. Praise Him for the fact that He is the source of strength and song. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise Him, my Father's God, and I will exalt Him. V verse 3. I know this doesn't sound like a good stanza, but it says, The Lord is a man of war. The Lord, Yahweh is His name. God is described as a warrior. Yahweh is a warrior. That's why Psalm 24, 8 says he is mighty in battle. We, well, we read that he's the, Yahweh is the Lord of, of hosts of many armies. That's Lord Sabaoth. That's actually biblical. We are singing truth when we do that. What are we singing when we say that he's the Lord Sabaoth? We say that he's our commander-in-chief. That's what we mean. That should prompt us to praise him. Praise Him for His power. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, right hand, O Lord, shares the enemy. Whenever you see in the Old Testament your right hand, God is about to do something great or He's done something great. Right hand means power in the Old Testament. It's basically, the, the imagery is this. God says, I'm going to beat you with one hand tied behind my back. That's the imagery. That's the imagery. And we know that because he doesn't have to use his hands. The imagery here says, I'm going to destroy them with the blast of my nostrils. It's obviously a figure of speech. The question is, my dear brothers and sisters, does God still have the power to save? Second Peter 3.9 says that he does. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, count uh, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. See, God is patient and wants you to come to Him. God is still powerful and He can save. He's still the Savior. The question is, is He your Savior? He is the Lord. The question is, is He your Lord? Have you submitted under His, His authority? We have to praise Him for His power, and the greatest power He showed was in the person of Jesus Christ. See, on the mountain of transfiguration, the Bible tells us in Luke what happened. Jesus was transformed, but there was something here in the text that's very important to our text. Starting in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these things, he took with him Peter and John and James and up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his 
departure, says the ESV. Some other versions have even worse translations. But the, the Greek word is the word exodus. They were talking about his exodus. Jesus' exodus that would happen when? In Jerusalem. Je Jesus is ready to go down the cross for our sins and rise again. And he says, this is my exodus. See, through the exodus of Egypt, Moses brought some to salvation. But through the exodus that Jesus will do on the cross for us, he will save many. So the book of Exodus points us to the real Exodus. What happened with Moses and the Exodus is a foreshadowing of Jesus' salvation that he accomplished for all of us. So what does the Old Testament have to do with the New Testament? A lot. A lot. Moses delivered Israel from physical bondage. Jesus delivers us from spiritual bondage. So praise him for his faithfulness. I want to close with this idea. Uh, remember, to Abraham, God said, I will bless those who bless you, and he who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We actually see the beginning of this promise being fulfilled in our text, in Exodus. When the people of Israel left Exodus, they did not, they did not leave alone. Verse 38 of chapter 12 says, a mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And again, the translation is good, but could be much better because mixed there is better translated, ethnically diverse multitude. In other words, when the people of Israel left Israel, they did not live by themselves. There were other pagans people, pagans who left with them, including Egyptians. And who knows what other, we don't know what. We don't know which, who else left. We don't know. But later, Ruth will say, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That's what these people were doing. They left with Israel because they indeed saw that Yahweh is the only true God.